0: As I said, in 2018, we are seeking to courageously connect as a church, and over these last few weeks, we've been wrestling with courageously connecting in our marriages. Now, like I said last week, if you are divorced, please don't interpret anything I say in a condemning way, because I do not mean to condemn you in any way, because we understand you cannot change your past, but you can live with hope for the future. If you're single and you would like to get married, which uh, reports say that 93% of you do, then what I encourage you to do is to take these principles and prepare yourself to be a good spouse one day. And you, you use the principles that we surface to, to have like characteristics that you want to look for in a potential meet. And if you're single and you don't want to get married, uh, then that's cool. I think some of the principles we look at can co- apply to any relationship. But we're gonna focus on the marriage relationship. And today, I I wanna give you some tools to help you have a long and happy marriage. Now years ago, I caught a glimpse of what that looks like. In my very first church where I pastored in Virginia, it was one of those planned communities that was near the Washington, D.C. area. And so it was very attractive uh, to a lot of couples who had worked in the D.C. area and then retired in the area. And so one of the cool things I got to experience there in my first church was celebrating with couples who made their 50th and even 60th wedding anniversaries. And so what I saw in them were people who I got to witness firsthand who had long marriages and they were still happy. And so I got this vision for my life. I began to picture myself in my 60s and in my 70s, you know? I'm going to look better than that, though, I'll tell you that. And I began to imagine myself in those later years still with Barbara, still with the woman I fell in love with when I was in my 20s. I'm determined to make it. And yet I've been honest with you guys about some of the critical challenges that we have faced in our own marriage that threaten to sabotage our relationship. So if you're married... I'm gonna ask you, do you think your marriage is gonna make it? And if it does, do you think you're gonna be happy in it? Are the decisions you're you're making now, are they making your marriage stronger and more one? Or are your negative tendencies laying landmines that threaten to damage or destroy your relationship? And if you're single and you want to marry What will prepare you to have the best chance of forging a long and happy marriage? Well, last week we studied what Jesus said about marriages where couples courageously connect. And we looked at some of the principles he taught. This week, I want us to look at what Jesus said will wreck your marriage. And so let me set the scene again. Uh, Jesus is speaking to large crowds near the Jordan River. And there was a certain group of religious leaders called Pharisees. And the Pharisees were trying to pick a fight with Jesus. And they did so by asking if a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. Something those Pharisees believed in and practiced themselves. I want us to go back and look at Jesus' response to that question. This is Matthew 19 verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, At the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So if if you remember, Jesus moved their attention from why you could get a divorce to a why God created the marriage relationship. And if you if remember, we said Jesus made two points. The first point is that God is for marriage. He's for your marriage. He wants your marriage to make it. He wants you to courageously connect. The second point he made is that it's, it's, it's like about the goal of marriage. The goal of a marriage is that two people would become one. And what Jesus also said about marriage here is that God actually joins in on this relationship. He participates in the marriage. The biblical concept that Jesus is describing here is called covenant. He's talking about a covenant relationship. And it's the covenant relationship that actually makes us one. Now, I think it's important to distinguish and to, to grasp the difference between a covenant relationship and a contract relationship. In a contractual relationship, people negotiate the terms of their agreement, but if a person doesn't live up to his or her part of the agreement, we feel confident to just end the agreement. A contract can be temporary and disposable if somebody doesn't live up to their terms. A covenant relationship is not like that. The concept of covenant appears all through the scriptures, and the Hebrew (coughs) word that is translated a covenant hundreds of times is the Hebrew word chesed. Can you say that with me? Hesed, And chesed literally means steadfast love or devotion. And at its most basic level, a covenant is a committed loving promise that binds people together. And in the case of a marriage, in cor- according to Jesus, it's the binding of a husband, a wife, and God. He's in on the relationship With us. And so if you're married, it's important to view your relationship from this covenant perspective. Let your words and actions reflect a steadfast and devoted love. Don't speak words that threaten to dissolve the relationship when times get tough. Oneness doesn't develop based on a contractual kind of relationship. It's based on a covenant relationship. And if you're single and you want to marry, find someone who gets this. You do not want to be in on a contract relationship. Find someone who gets covenant and recognizes that God's a part of it with you. Now, Jesus, so Jesus challenged his followers to pursue oneness in marriage like God intended. But the Pharisees did not like Jesus' answer, the one that he just gave. And so they asked a follow-up question, trying to keep this fight going. And in Jesus' response to this follow-up question, he addresses the key issue that was wrecking marriages and that will wreck your marriage. This is Matthew chapter 19, verse 7. Why then, they asked Did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way from the beginning. Now, technically, God did allow for divorce in the Old Testament laws that guided the Israelite people. But Jesus reminded them that divorce was not what God intended. Instead, divorce was a concession. What did he say? Because too many people had hard hearts. Hard hearts. And what Jesus said in essence is that hard hearts wrecks oneness. Hard hearts wreck oneness. So just what is a hard heart? Now, I looked up all the Greek in this and all, and that phrase is only used one other time in the the books of the Bible that tell Jesus' story, and it's used by Jesus again. And it occurs when Jewish religious leaders were again seeking to accuse Jesus of something. They wanted to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Now, if you're not familiar with the Sabbath in Jesus' day in his Jewish culture, the Sabbath was like like this uber holiday every week. And there was supposed to be no work of any kind, no work, work, no yard work, no housework, no honeydew lists, no sports, no nothing. And so on a certain uh, Sabbath day, Jesus was in a synagogue, and he noticed a man with a deformed hand. This is Mark chapter 3, verse (coughs) 3. Jesus said to the man with a deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone, Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this the day to save a life or destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by what? Their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Those religious leaders had hard hearts. Their hearts were so hard, their hearts blinded them, get this, from recognizing who Jesus really was. I mean, think about it. They witnessed a powerful, undeniable supernatural miracle right in front of them but instead of feeling good and being excited and praising God they got together to figure out how to kill him hard hearts caused them to see something good but feel something bad you hear what I'm saying hard hearts caused them to see something good but to feel something bad and when your heart gets hard in your marriage, it's the same thing happens. When our hearts become hard, even when our spouses do something good, we feel something bad. Has your heart become hard toward your spouse? You know, it can happen to anyone. And even as I prepare for this message, I feel like there were probably seasons in my marriage where my heart became hard toward Barbara. Barbara. I think it can happen to anyone. So what is what makes our hearts hard? So Dr. John Gottman is a sociologist who studied, get this, 49 couples who agreed to live in apartments that were laboratories. And he studied these couples for 16 years. So it's sort of like that TV show, Big Brother, but instead of like six months, imagine now, 16 years. They let him tape and watch every aspect of their lives. And Dr. Gottman's research allowed him to predict whether a marriage would make it or not 91% of the times. And what he found was there there were four triggers that if those triggers surfaced within a marriage, that marriage would likely not make it. First trigger, criticism. A complaint points out something that is annoying to you. Like if your spouse drinks milk out of the carton, or, or leaves her or his shoes and socks all over the floor, that, and it really and that bothers you. Okay, a complaint you know deals with actions. Criticism goes at the person. Okay, a complaint attacks a problem, and that's appropriate. A criticism attacks a person. And if you criticize your spouse, you will create the environment where hearts will become hard. And hard hearts, according to Jesus, wrecks oneness. The second trigger Dr. Gottman found, contempt. Contempt shows disgust towards your spouse with such, such actions as name-calling, belittling, demeaning humor, and various body signs like uh, rolling your eyes, right, or glaring, or have you ever had the condescending touch on your shoulder or leg? Doesn't that piss you off, man? That makes me mad. (laughs) Okay, I want you to get this. If you feel contempt toward your spouse, it will come out. That's the point. You gotta get in and deal with your heart because if you feel contempt, it will come out and it will make hearts hard. Third trigger, defensiveness. Defensiveness occurs when a spouse does something wrong but won't admit it. Okay. Defensiveness puts the spouses in a posture of rival, rival, uh, rivaling enemies instead of united allies. You know what I'm saying? And if when you do something wrong, you don't admit it, you will create the environment where hearts will become hard and hard hearts wreck oneness. Fourth trigger, withdrawal. Withdrawal occurs when you stop doing the hard work of pursuing oneness, and instead settle for living two parallel but separate individual lives? What are signs that you've regressed into withdrawal? If you avoid meaningful conversation, if you tune your spouse out with internet searching or watching TV programs or other numbing behavior. If you have disengaged emotionally, and you know it, you feel it. Or if you're sleeping in separate beds. When any of these four triggers surface in a marriage, that marriage is not likely to make it. So how can we either keep our hearts soft and keep them from becoming hard? Or if you have a hard heart, how can you soften your hard heart? And so I want to recommend three actions to take. The first, love the person you married, okay? Love the person you married. Stop thinking about somebody else that would be better, you know what I'm saying? Perhaps the wisest observation I've ever heard about the struggles that Americans have forging great marriages, I didn't hear from a pastor or a Christian counselor. I heard from an Indian philosopher. I was in a philosophy class at UTSA and the reporter, the, the, the film reporter, was interviewing this Indian philosopher about the differences between, you know, Indians and the way they think and Americans and the way we think. And he made this one observation. He said, you know, I think it's so interesting that in America where we choose who we want to marry, our divorce rate is sky high. But in India where most marriages are arranged, the divorce rate is so low. How do you account for that? And this is how that, <coughs> that uh, philosopher, Indian philosopher replied. He said, in your country, you're taught to marry the person you love. In my country, we're taught to love the person we marry. And I want to suggest to you what he says there is in line with what Jesus taught. Because you know in Jesus' day, almost all marriages were arranged. And they taught They're people how to love the person you marry. Now, I'm concerned that too many of us get our notion of love and marriage from movies and romance novels and novellas. Come on now, I'm going there. Instead of from the scriptures, (coughs) that... That Indian philosopher's statement, it does reflect God's idea for marriages. Love the person you marry. That's how you gap the difference between the ideal marriage that you're thinking about and the real marriage that you're actually in. Right? You see, most of us think that to have an ideal marriage, you got to get Mr. or Mrs. Right? That the issue is, I gotta have, I gotta gotta find the right one. You ever heard that? And so you're aimlessly wandering through life trying to find Mr. or Mrs. Right. So I got some news for you there's no Mr. Right out there. Now, there are some Mr. Wrongs out there, okay, and they have plenty of them. But you know who you're really gonna get? Mr. Good Enough as is, like we talked about last week. And so I'm encouraging you to love your spouse as is. Love the person you marry. Ideal marriages do not depend on marrying ideal spouses. Marriages become great when spouses choose to love each other. And when they choose to love each other, it helps them become more one and it softens hard hearts. Second thing that I've seen soften hearts and protect us from getting hard hearts is to get core healing. To get core healing. Let Let me explain what I mean. If we experience dysfunction or pain or abuse, either in the family we grew up in or in a previous relationship, many times we bring all that pain and all that baggage into our current marriage. And at times, we end up projecting our issues with our parents, our issues with our exes, and we, we dump it all over our current spouse who didn't do nothing. I want you to get me on this. Hurt people hurt people. And hurt spouses hurt spouses. I, th- I think that's why it's critical, and it's what we teach in our church, that everybody is in need of core healing. From some, I've been honest with you guys about my own anger issues. That was all about core healing that I needed. And so if you recognize that some of the past pain that you've experienced is causing you to dump your crap on your present spouse, then get core healing. And we have a program at City Church <coughs> that is unique and powerful to help you get the core healing you need. It's called Peeling the Onion to Get to the Core Peeling the onion, and we call it PTO for short. And so uh, it's going to start up, the new groups are going to start up in March. And if, if you know that this is the, the, the biggest issue in your marriage right now, get core healing and go through peeling the onion. So one final action that I think will soften hard hearts is to learn how to make amends. As I said last week, marriage is a covenant between two imperfect people, Spouses will wrong each other. And the more intimate the relationship, the more painful and deep the wounds will be. I think it's critical that that we as couples, we learn how to communicate with each other, especially when we've wronged one another. And so the way you make amends is when you've wronged your spouse, you ask for forgiveness humbly with no excuses. And when your spouse has wronged you, you forgive. Forgiveness is the key. Forgiveness tears down walls. Forgiveness heals wounds. Forgiveness softens hard hearts. And if you need some help getting there, if if you're in a season where you need some help softening your heart or you need some help setting some healthy and new habits to help you grow in oneness, we, we have a marriage program that will kick off on February the 28th. And we have seen this program for years strengthen good marriages and heal broken marriages where hearts have become hard. Now, hard hearts nearly wrecked the marriage of my friends J and D, and they have given me permission to share their story with you. So this is their story. Uh, when, When they started dating in college, they fell in love, and they believed they were ready to marry. While discussing their wedding plans, they both agreed they did not want a marriage like either of their parents. Jay's parents fought furiously all the time, and D's parents' uh, marriage was filled with resentment and passive aggression. But they did not know how to create a healthy marriage. On top of all of the negative examples they had seen in their own parents, they also had negative tendencies that sabotaged their pursuit of oneness. As a child, Jay was severely beaten by some bullies and almost died. And then his father died when he was just 16. And Jay said, and I quote him, I didn't know it at the time, but I brought a wounded, wandering heart into my marriage. I openly clung to girlfriends from my past and wondered out loud to Dee about being married to other people. I eventually escaped into pornography for 15 years. And that led me to create completely unrealistic expectations of Dee. Dee's negative tendencies flowed out of her relationship with a father who openly told her that he wanted a son and not a girl. She said, I came into our marriage with an overwhelming need to matter. This set me up to always work harder and to be better than anyone. At the end of it all, I became a scared perfectionist I tried harder and harder to get Jay's attention, but to no avail. So I began to build a wall, interesting word, a wall around my heart. Their hearts became hard toward each other. D eventually had an affair. When Jay found out about it, he acted like he didn't care, which hurt D even more. But it did hurt Jay, and he ended up pursuing an emotional affair with a co-worker, their marriage was on the verge of implosion. They eventually broke off their extramarital affairs, but they knew they needed help. Now, Jay had not grown up in church, and D had not been to church for a decade, but they started coming to City Church, and over time, they realized that God was the missing part of their relationship. D trusted in Christ and was baptized in 2011. Jay did the same the next year. They said, these are their words, we finally put our faith in the name of God, in, in, in the same God, sorry. And on June 23rd of 2012, <coughs> we really got married in a ceremony with friends and family. We had finally realized that to experience true joy in a fruitful marriage, we needed to choose love and to ask God to be at the center of our relationship. J and D have served faithfully here in our marriage program and this last year, they celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary. And it looks like they're going to make it. But the healing began when they brought their hard hearts before God and asked him to soften their hearts. Has your heart become hard? If it is, I want, you, I, I want you to understand that your spouse can't soften your heart. Only you can, with God's help. And so I'm going to give you a moment to begin softening your heart. I'm going to ask you to choose forgiveness over bitterness. I ask you to choose healing over pain. I ask you to choose love over hardness. I promise you, I promise you, your marriage can be happy, and you can become one again if you will soften your heart. Let's pray together. Lord God, it is so good to know that you are for us in our marriages, and you are with us in our marriages. And we ask you to help us soften our hearts. And so what what I'm gonna ask you to do is if you're married, I want you to begin to soften your heart today by choosing one wrong that your spouse has done against you and to forgive your spouse for that. And if you're single, I want you to to pick maybe another significant relationship where someone has wronged you and I'm asking you to choose to forgive that person. Let the healing begin today. Let our hearts become softened today. Okay, are you ready? I want you to maybe whisper this prayer as I lead you through it. Lord God, I believe you forgive me of my sins. And you ask me to forgive others of their sins. And today I choose to forgive and just whisper that person's name and what they did. I forgive. I let it go. And now soften my heart, God. Pray that prayer, God. Soften my heart. I let the bitterness go. I let the resentment go. Lord God, I I ask that as you hear our prayers that you would do your part, which is to heal us. Just like, Lord Jesus, just like you healed that, that man's hand, I ask you to powerfully and supernaturally heal our hard hearts and soften them, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would allow us to experience oneness and a lasting love in our marriage relationships, in Jesus' name.